Our scripture reading for this morning comes from 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, and Psalm 51. Verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Verse 18. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. We've been a part of this the last couple of months. We've been looking at the life of David. <clears throat> and the life of David is the single uh, longest narrative of a single human life in all of ancient literature, in all of ancient literature, not just the Bible. And so uh, it's important that we study it. That's why it's in the Bible, and it's the longest narrative, even in the Bible, of a single human life. And uh, last week, if you were here the last several weeks, last week we learned that David, this warrior, this poet, this king, this man after God's heart, his life just completely blows up. But this is why the narrative is so important to us, because if a man like David, if his life can completely explode, then anyone's life can explode. Think about it. This is David. Lots of people. There are lots of people in this room. And no matter how great you become, None of you will be like David, at least I don't think. Is there anyone here who 3,000 years from now will, be, will still be discussing their lives? I doubt it. So if it can happen to David, it could happen to you. But if a life like David's can be restored and healed and renewed, then anyone's life can be restored and renewed. And how does that happen? Today, we come to a place in Scripture. We come to something you have it. Even if your life completely explodes, blows up, it can be repaired. No matter how severely broken your life is, it can be made completely whole. That's what we're going to go into today. If you try to, you know, on one hand, if you try to, to change your life without it, you'll never change. You'll try hard. It's actually only going to make you more frustrated in life. The word is repentance. It's a dangerous word because a lot of people have different conceptions about repentance, the word. Um, but listen, without it, we will never change. And this psalm was written when David would, had pretty much hit rock bottom. It's not, it wasn't written long after in a reflection. It was actually written in the moment. And David's right in it. He's right in the midst of it. And it's the best resource we have on what the Bible means. Repentance. So we're going to see three things today. One is the preparation for repentance. The second are the parts of repentance. And lastly, the power for repentance. 
the preparation, the parts, the power. Uh, Because David couldn't repent, it happened. And only because he learned to repent, he was restored. We all need it. So first, it's the preparation. When does it happen? How do we be prepared to repent? Most people, when they hear me talk about repentance, they say, show me the steps to repentance. And on one hand, you are going to get some steps, but what they're really saying is, give me the list so that on my terms, I will do it. And there's no way. That's never going to happen. It doesn't work that way. Why? Because you never know you're sinning when you're sinning. Come on, sin never feels like sin. Sin, when you, sin never feels like sin. Look at David. When he sent for Bathsheba, he didn't see himself as a sinner. He saw himself as a man. He saw himself as a, as a, as a romantic. When he gave the order for Uriah to be killed, he didn't feel like a sinner. He felt like a general. He felt like a commander-in-chief. That's how he felt. The very essence of sin is what? Self-deception. None of us say, I'm a sinner, that's why I sin. You know, that's, that, none of us say that. None of us confess that. Our greatest, our greatest flaws, the very essence of sin, at the root is self-deception. Our greatest flaws, the habits of our heart that are killing us most are the ones that are killing us because we can't see them. That's what we've been learning. By definition, because of self-deception in our lives, we, don't, we are not able to see our sins. So even if, you know, and that's the reason why they have control over us. That's the reason why they have such a grip on us. Because we don't see them. Because we don't want to see them. We don't want to know these things. And as a result, we don't know who we are. We don't know how deep these sins go. We can sit there and say, I'm going to work today. I'm going to choose to work on my biggest flaws in life. But by definition, you can't because you don't know what they are. You can't know what they are. How do you know? You know, I mean, you can change some things in your life, but you're not going to change the things that are the deepest, the things that have a real grip in your life. How do you know that? How will you ever find out? And the answer is, and the preparation is, your friends. Spiritual friendships. Radical community. Our Nathans. Verse 13. It was Nathan who came to Jesus, to David. If you know this narrative... Nathan wasn't just a minister. He wasn't just a prophet of God. He was a friend. If you look through the scriptures, Nathan was a friend of David's. And without Nathan, David would never have been able to see his flaws, the deep killing him. Never have been rescued. He would have died. He would have died. He would have been, he would have been completely blown up. We have to thank God for our friends. The friends who confront us the friends who navigate all the minefields in our lives, all the defenses that we put up, all of our self-righteousness, the friends who are able to navigate all those things and speak directly into our sinfulness and advise us and counsel us and sometimes confront us and fight us. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend because God uses our friends. We're, We're giving them a search warrant and we're giving them a knife. And uh, it's two kind of unusual illustrations at the same time. But if you think about it, what we're doing is we're giving them a warrant to be able to go in and to excise the things that are killing us. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Do you have any Nathans in your life? Real Nathans. You're dead without them. 
The context of repentance is community, deep personal friends in the local context. So here's an application for you. Um, you got to make the world a safer place for friends who are close to you to talk with you about what's actually wrong with you. Do you do that? Or do you secretly receive things and then subversively, secretly, defensively, you get devastated? You know, or you get angry at them. You can't learn repentance the way you learn tennis. You know, I'm, I'm getting older. I'm coming to the reality that I'm getting older. I was just having a conversation about this with someone earlier. And, uh, you know, I'm still clinging on to my youth and playing sports that I, was, uh, that I excelled at when I was younger, and I realized it doesn't work anymore. So I'm trying to pick up new sports. And one of the sports I'm trying to pick up is tennis. It's a struggle for me because, you know, I'm not used to, uh, I'm not used to the sport, I'm not used to the, to the tennis racket and things like that. I'm trying to commit to it. Um, you, and even that's hard. That's very hard. It takes a lot of work, a lot of practice. I see now how much devotion it takes. But you can't learn repentance the way you learn tennis. It doesn't work that way. You know, you can't learn, ten- you can't learn repentance like tennis where you go out on your own terms and just kind of work at things little by little. Because if that's what you're doing, before you know it, there's going to be confusion in your life. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be darkness. There's going to be brokenness. It's going to be a lot of things, a lot of thorns, the thorns of life that are pressing on you. And it's not going to connect. Things, some things are just not going to connect. You can't learn it like tennis. You can't learn it like a sport. You can't just pick it up. You have to be prepared to be able to receive the things from our deep community, the radical community that we have in our lives. People who are willing to kind of to navigate those waters, to speak into you. And, and it's, it's like excising a tumor. You have to get all of it. You have to go to the depths of it. And that takes, if we do it like a series of steps, it's going to destroy us. We're never going to get at the things that we really, really need. This is not something that we do to just improve our lives. So we need people around us who are going to be able to tell us the truth. That's the first point. Now, the second point are the parts. There are three parts, three movements, and they kind of hang together. They all hang together as functions in our lives. And it's in this beautiful psalm, Psalm 51. We're going to focus mainly on the first four verses because the whole of the psalm hangs on those first verses. In fact, we're going to focus on the first part, the first half of verse 4, which has pretty much every component. It pretty much sums up the entire components, set of components. If you want to repent, you have to do all three. There's no sequence, there's no order, but you have to do all and so um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into this. Now, the first half of verse 4 goes like this. Against you, you only, have I sinned. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Against you, you only, have I sinned. Now, if you want uh, a message like this this week, while you're driving, while you're on the road, while you're jogging, here's what I'd like you to do. Take one word of that first half and just emphasize all day just one word of that phrase through the week. So you start out with, against you, you only have I sinned. 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 
Go ahead, go through the week. Just emphasize a different part of that first half and just meditate on that and see what it does. See what it does in our lives. Um, Here's what it is. If you want to kind of sum up the whole thing, repentance looks like this. It's something of the mind, it's something of the heart, and it's something of the will. Three components, three functions, three movements. It's something of the mind, the heart, and the will. Jesus Christ, he says, the greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. In other words, and those things overlap. In other words, the totality of your being is worship. The totality of your being is turned towards the Father God. If sin is what has taken us away, it means it has taken the totality of our being away, our mind, our heart. Our will. Psalm 95 talks about worship being of the mind and the heart and the will. If sin has taken us away from, the, from God in that way, then repentance is to reset the mind and the heart and the will back. Three parts. Here's the first part. With the mind, you have to say, against you, I've sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight. What does that mean? With your mind, you have to know. Think about this. Everybody, everybody deals with a sense of failure, a sense of point in their lives. Everybody does. In a given day, in a given week, everybody deals with some sense of failure or guilt. Now, how do you know if that guilt is a real guilt? Jiminy Cricket says what? Always let your conscience be your guide. Now, listen. If you do that, you know, serial killers, Hitler did that, didn't he? Right? And it didn't work. It doesn't work. Why? Because if you say only you can decide what is right or wrong, right, then you can't condemn Hitler for what he did. You can't condemn serial killers for what they do. Because that's what they did. They let their conscience be their guide. Unless you believe, ah, there must be some kind of measure, some kind of standard above my own thoughts of what is right and wrong to decide what is real, what is real guilt, what the standard is. How does David find it? David doesn't say, oh, I sinned in my parents' sight. I feel guilty. I sinned in my friend's sight. In front of my court, in front of my palace, I've sinned. He doesn't say that. He says, against you, I've done what is evil in your sight. That's what he says. Now, that sounds pretty reprehensible if you think about it, because if you think about what he did, what about Uriah? Did he not sin against Uriah? What about Bathsheba? Did he not sin against her? What about the soldiers who died with Uriah? Did he not sin against them? What about the people that he lied to in the palace and conspired? Did he not sin against them? What about poor Joab, the commander-in-chief, who had to execute these orders? Did he not sin against him? David is not writing an essay about sin. He's not writing an essay about repentance in this poem. He's writing a song. He's writing a poem. This is a prayer to God. Yeah, he could have said, I, I sinned against the civil law. I sinned against the ethical law. I sinned against my people. I sinned against my good friend. I sinned against his wife. It's all true. And, that's, and that's, he's not denying that. He could have said, yes, I violated the social law, the cultural law, the moral law. I don't deserve to be a king. I don't deserve to be someone's husband. I don't deserve to be a citizen in this country. I certainly deserve jail, maybe even death. But in all those cases, the focus would have been on the consequences. The sin that got him into these consequences, but not the sin itself, the deep sin. Most of us repent because of the impact that sin 
has on us. Most of us repent. We come to change. We come to conviction because of the impact that our sins have in us and on our lives, around, on people around us. We don't think about the impact that it had on the Father. We don't come to repent because of the impact that it had on God. We think about how the sin grieves us. We don't think about how the sin grieves the Father. And if you do that, you might stop sin for a little bit. But what you don't realize is that sin is so deeply rooted, it still has a power over you. You may stop some of the outward manifestations, but the sin still has a grip on you. Imagine a woman. Imagine your spouse um, who, you know, who says to you, I'm leaving you because you've wronged me so many times, I've just had it. Okay, married people, you know, couples, think about your spouse. You know, your spouse says, I'm going to leave you because I've just had it. I'm le- I've just had enough. And, uh, and uh, just for the sake of argument, here's this woman who says this, and the husband says, you know, please, please do not leave. I'm so sorry. Please don't leave me. I'm going to make changes. I'm going to make all these changes. Here's a list of all the changes I'm going to make. So the woman says, yes, I'll stick around then for a little bit, and we'll see. And after a while, he makes changes. He starts making all these changes. After a while, what happens? things start to go back to normal. Tensions start to die down. And when the threats are gone, the spouse starts to go back to his old self. Little by little, through a series of self-deception, justification, deceit, the selfishness starts to return. Why does it happen? It's because he, he doesn't hate the sin. He only hates what it did in his life. He hates the consequences. Once the consequences are gone, we're going to get right back to it. Listen to David. He says, against you, you only, have I sinned. So we know, you know, David, you know, he, he, he knows the law. He loves the law. He knows God's word. He knows the Bible is the measure. He knows that his sin is more than just a violation of the social law, the cultural law, the ethical law. He says, yeah, I can go to jail for certain things, certain wrongs. I know that I could be socially cast out, maybe even cast out of my kingdom. But David knew it's less about all those things. And it's all about I've done what is evil in God's sight. That's the measure. You have to know that. That's where the confession comes from. You know when you confess that. And that kind of leads into the second part, which is the heart. David says, against you, you only, he says. There has to be sorrow. There has to be a grieving. Here's David. He's down in his depths. He sees the enormity of what he's done, and he's come to hate his sin. How do you know that? He says, against you, you only. Now, wait. What about all those people that he's sinned against, all those people that have been damaged? You know, we talked about how most of us repent when we look at the consequences, but that's not what David does here. The Hebrew, the Hebrew and in the Greek, actually, the doublet, when you see, anytime you see somebody addressing somebody with a doublet, you know, you see David later on, there's a civil war going on in his kingdom in, in this book, in Second Samuel, and uh, his, his own son is conspiring against him, and his son is caught, and he's dying, he's dead. And David cradles him, in his arms, and he says, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. We have, um, we have Jesus in the house of Mary and Martha, and Mary and Martha is cooking. They're cooking for, for Jesus, 
And Martha is upset because Mary has stepped away and now sits at the feet of Jesus. And Martha is incredibly upset. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious about many things, right? Whenever you address somebody in Scripture, uh, in the Greek or in the Hebrew, whenever somebody is being addressed in the doublet, it always implies an intense, intense emotional content. There's this intense feeling, this intense loving emotion. So what David's saying here when he says, against you, you only, what he's saying here is, yes, I sinned against the law. Yes, I've done that. But I mainly sinned against you. Yes, I sinned against Uriah. Yes, I sinned against Bathsheba. Yes, I sinned against Joab. Yes, I sinned against my best friends. I sinned in front of my palace, in front of my court. I'm a judge. And yes, I violated the law. And I didn't just violate the law. I tried to cover it up. I tried to obstruct justice. And I've done all these things. I've done that. But I've done all those things because I sinned against you. I've grown distant from you, my father. I sinned against the loving God. I sinned against the compassionate God. Verse 1, he starts out, Have mercy on me, O God according to your unfailing love. He knows God is, his love is unfailing. He knows God is compassionate. He doesn't fill himself with the law. He, says, he doesn't say, have mercy on me, O God. I violated your commands. I violated. You know, David in this entire episode violated over half of the commandments in one narrative, in one narrative alone. And yet, he says, you are, an un- you are a God of unfailing love. He doesn't fill himself with the law. He knows the law. He's a judge. He knows the law. He knows he broke the law. He fills himself with the love of God, the compassion of God, the grief of God. That's his treasure. Repentance is really coming back to your treasure, your real treasure. Look, the thing that we treasure most is the thing that's going to assure us of value and worth. For example, you can be, let's say you're in jail. You've been sentenced to prison for 20 years, and you're living out this sentence and you're rotting away, and you're, you know, you're, I don't know, what, they, what do they serve? The bread and water, that's, a, that's your meal. You're barely just sustaining your life. Bread and water, you don't, have, you don't get a haircut, you don't get to have a decent shower. Uh, you know, for 20 years, there's no, you, you, the clothes you have, they belong to the government. They don't even belong to you. They're not even really clothes. And, and what if you know, it's now, you're now nearing the, the end of your prison term, 20 years, your last, you know, several weeks in jail. And, and what's going to sustain you? What sustained you in those 20 years? What if on your way out you know that you have a bank account in the Cayman Islands set up with millions of dollars? You ever watch The Wolf of Wall Street? He's going to jail. The guy's going to jail at the end of the, of the movie. You know, it's a true story, actually. Uh, and if you grew up in the 80s, it's, it was a very, very real story in the 80s of just uh, uh, defined their culture in many ways. But here's this person. After just the, the debaucherous life that he was living, he goes to prison uh, because of all these violations uh, against the SEC and uh, Security and Exchange Commission. And so he goes to jail, and he says, I was terrified, but I, then I realized I am filthy rich. When I come out, I'm going to be rich. That's what sustained him. Because when you know, when you have a treasure, and you're restored to that treasure, you know, it doesn't matter if you're going to jail. 
It's not the jail that defines you. It doesn't matter if your haircut. It's not your hair, your looks that define you. It doesn't matter if the people around you in jail all hate you. Your relationships around you don't define you. It doesn't matter if your family has turned against you or away from you or rejected you or are ashamed of you because it's not your family that defines you. It doesn't matter if, um, you know, the clothes that you're wearing are not your clothes. They're government-issued property. It's not your possessions that define you. Your treasure is anything that assures you of value and worth. If it's family, your ch- and if it's your family or your children that keep you going in life, then your work and your church, maybe even your own health, will be expendable. Because they're not your treasure. If your work or your title or your salary is what keeps you going in life, then your family, your church community, are going to be expendable. If people's approval is what you value in life, that's what gives you value and and a sense of worth, not God's love in a way that's going to bring you joy, then you're going to lie, you're going to put up pretenses, you're going to fake your way through life. You're going to be angry when people put you down. You're going to be devastated when uh, when people insult you. All of life, Martin Luther said this pretty much in his first of 95 theses. Martin Luther pretty much says all of life is really recognizing a sense of misplaced treasure in our lives and repenting of them. That's what it is. If you don't do it, you're going to sink. But what if it's God's love that most assures you? All the things then in our lives become subordinate to that. Our reputation, having the perfect family, our wealth. Do you get that? Look at David. For David, God's love became his treasure. He was restored to that. He knew he wronged and violated his love, God's love for him. When you realize that the person that you love the most, the person um, <clears throat> that you love the most is the person that you wronged the most, the person that you, you hurt the most, oh, that, makes, that brings you a sense of grief. That's going to make you suffer. There's no suffering like that. When the person you love the most is the person you hurt the most, you're going to hate what you do. You're going to hate certain parts of who you are. You're going to hate the sin for what it cost that person. And David says, against, I mean, he knows he sinned against Uriah. He knows he sinned against Bathsheba and Joab and his palace and his friends. He knows that. But he said, you are the person that I love the most, and I've hurt you. And that's what brought his grieving. Have you ever hurt somebody in a bad argument? Have you ever get into an argument with someone you hurt them really bad? You just had to be right. You know what happens? When you realize that you hurt them, when you get to that, there's that breaking point or moment when you realize you've crossed the line and you've hurt that person. What you're fighting for starts to lose its taste. I mean, if you're fighting to be right, being right loses its taste. When you're fighting for justice and you're trying to exact punishment, it starts to lose its taste. So is is power and money, even good things like family, even good things like church, it will lose its taste if you realize all these things are just being used to build up your sense of worth and has become your treasure. So David said, so with the, with the uh, mind, we have to know, against you I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 
with your heart. You have to say, against you, you. You're addressing the Father. You're saying, I'm grieving. I'm in sorrow because I've departed from you. The third thing is, with our will, as we confess, we have to take full responsibility for what we've done. Full responsibility. Verse 4, against you, I, I have sinned. I have sinned. There's no buts here. He doesn't say, but you have to understand, God. Uh, you know, I was kind of put in a, kind of an interesting place. He doesn't say that. You know, um, Adam, in the Garden of Eden, Adam, when he sinned, he said, yes, I've sinned. But the woman you put here made me do it. Eve, upon her sin, said, yes, I've sinned. But... The serpent made me do it. The way we're able to do evil is to not take responsibility for the things we do. It's only when David takes full responsibility for what he does that he begins to change. With our will, we confess and take full moral responsibility for what we've done. Most of the time, we don't do that. We say, well, you know, I did this. Yes, I did this, but it's because she did this. Or it's because I was abused. That's what we say. The moment we stop doing that, the moment we take full responsibility, change will begin. Spouses, you know, when I talk to married couples who are having problems, it's inevitable. You know, I say to one person, listen, you're not being a very good spouse. That's ultimately what I'm saying, right? You're not being a good spouse. They say, you're absolutely right. But you want to know why? It's because she's not a good spouse. I talked to one, I said, you know, you're not really, you got to, you really got to work on this. You're not really being a good spouse here. And I say, you know what, you're right. You want to know why? Because he's not being a good husband. That's what they say. Listen, you got to say, I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do because I'm responsible for that. I'm responsible before God to do what I should be. With our will, we have to own up. I have sinned. There's no buts. I have to, I have sinned. Most of us, you know, right now when you hear that, so, you know, with our, with our minds, we confess and uh, we say, against you, I've sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight. Uh, with our hearts, we grieve and there's sorrow because the relationship that has been broken between us and the Father, we distance ourselves and we're broken by that. The person we love the most, the person who loves us the most is the person we've hurt the most. And then with our will, we confess and we take full moral responsibility. Now, most of us are saying right now, that sounds really good. But I haven't been able to do it. It doesn't seem to work. And you want to know why? It's because there's no power. And that's the third point. There's no, we've got to find the power. Verse 1, David starts off with it. He says, according to your unfailing love, blot out my transgressions. David's treasure What brought David back is the unfailing love of God. That's how he was changed. That's how he healed him. He looked primarily at God and his broken relationship with God. It's because most of us, we don't believe that our relationship with God is big enough, it's important enough for us to even consider a need for change. We'll change because maybe... Our spouses need it. We'll change because maybe our children need it. We'll change because if we don't change, our career will take a turn. Or maybe we won't even have a career. 
We need to make certain changes in our lives. All those things are really selfish things that we are using to build up our sense of worth. But that's not what David does here. When you read this psalm, it says, against you I did this. Basically, that's what he's saying. Meaning what? Even before I committed physical adultery, even before I I committed um, physical adultery, I committed a spiritual adultery. Against you I did this. Why did I need power? Why did I need to have Bathsheba? Why did I need this? And the answer is this. I needed her arms because I walked away from your arms. I needed her embrace. I needed her intimacy because I walked away from your intimacy. I needed her beauty because I walked away from your beauty. I turned away from your beauty, and there's nothing like your beauty. There's nothing like the beauty of God. There's no love like God's love. There's no beauty like God's beauty. There's no righteousness like God's righteousness. The consequences, yes, they're absolutely painful, but being far from you, that is death. Once you see the sin, once you grieve over the sin, once you take responsibility for your sin, change will begin to take place, yes. But I know a lot of people who know and have tried these things and they've never recovered, but at the end of this psalm, this is an amazing thing. At the end of this psalm, this the first half of the psalm, Lord, remember me. Please don't forget me. Please forgive me. The latter half of the psalm, the first half of the psalm, the humility movement. Latter half of the psalm, the confidence movement. Two movements. All of a sudden he says what? Verse 13. Then will I teach transgressors your way. Towards the end of the psalm, David says, Open my lips and my mouth will sing forth your praise. David's joy is returning. Then I'm going to teach sinners your way. You know, after, you know, we look at that and we say, how dare he do that? I mean, this guy is a mess. But he trusts that he's forgiven and his confidence is back. He says, then my tongue will sing of your righteousness. His worship is back. Then we will build up, prosper the walls of Jerusalem. His kingship is back. His leadership is back. How did it all happen? David's heart is being healed. When you see the person that you love the most, the person that loves you the most, is the person that you've hurt the most, and yet, the person continues to love evermore to forgive and forgive and forgive and bless, you're going to start to change. Nathan says, Lord, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are forgiven. You are not going to die. You know, before David had that affair with Bathsheba, David was starting to become like all the other kings around him lusting after power. In fact, his affair with Bathsheba was really an affair with power. He was abusing power. He was conspiring and twisting and twisting his words so that he could use his power to get the things that he wants. He was abusing power. He was using power. And after a while, power started to control him. From this moment on, you never see that again in 2 Samuel. You never see that same lust for power in David's life. Power has lost its taste. It's lost its grip. It's lost its influence over David. You say, well, gosh, I wish I could just trust that. How, do I, how can I trust that? I don't have that assurance. I don't have that trust. And you're right. You don't. You have more. You have an even greater resource. Look, David says, 
please do not cast me away from your presence. Centuries later on the cross, Jesus Christ, born of the line of David, the king of kings, the judge of the world, on the cross, says, you have cast me away from your presence. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David says, don't break my bones. But on the cross, Jesus says, basically, my my bones are crushed. My bones are broken. In fact, they had to break his bones to even get him on the cross. Jesus got all the things that David deserved. Why? Jesus was broken so that we could be restored. Jesus was cast out so that we could be brought in. Jesus was rejected so that we could be accepted. Jesus was forsaken so that we could be forgiven. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 2. It's in your word of encouragement today. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. On the cross, Jesus got life's thorns pressed on him. And he said, my God, my God, you have forsaken me. He's saying, I am dying. To be far from you is death. You know why? Because you are my treasure. This is my treasure. God is what gives me assurance and value and worth in life. And he has left me and I am empty and I am lost. He says, I am thirsty. I am dead without you. David knew without God's love, without his compassion, he is dead. Jesus says, I have lost your love. I have lost your compassion. And he did that. And yet he remained faithful and sacrificial to the end. He made a way. God had made a way in his faithfulness. Jesus had made a way in his love. Friends, the way back, the way to return, when you are facing the enormity of your sin, there are, there are days and there are people that I know that, have, that at one point in their lives, they realize the sum of all that they are and it crushes them. If you're in that place, you've got to remember this psalm. You've got to begin with verse 1. You've got to remember his unfailing love. But the way there, as we said in the first point, is through our friends. Would you be willing to submit to your friends and say, can you find? I'm going to give you a search warrant to arrest my sin. Will you do that? Will you get involved in deep community to be able to do that? And will you actually listen to them? Now, we need to do those things. But without a reliance on God's unfailing love for us to the degree that it melts you, to repeat that over and over in our lives until it bursts us again back into a worship of the Father, unless we do that, we're going to be empty. It's when you and I realize, I see the enormity of my and I see the enormity of God's love and grace. Every time you look at the cross, Every time you look at the manger, it's an enormity of God's love and grace. It's always going to be bigger than the sin. And it's not going to be just slightly bigger than your sin. It's going to overflow. Jesus Christ, he atoned for our sin. That's how we are healed. David saw that. It restored David. It can restore us. Will it restore you? A lot of people who come to me, they always say, you know, you don't really know what I've done, you know. And that sounds a lot like humility, but in reality, that's, that's pride. Because do you not believe that the gospel is sufficient? 
A lot of people say, you know, you don't know where I've been. You don't know my past. Is not the gospel sufficient? You don't know where I've been. Do you not know where Jesus has been? He came down to the depths. That's the spans. That's the expense that he had spanned for our sakes. And he will do it again and again and again and again. David writes, My cup is Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. My cup overflows. The Advent represents us looking to the King who has come. Will you remember that? Just take that first half of verse 4 in Psalm 51. Emphasize a different word. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It will shape us. Will you remember to do that? Remember this week, as we anticipate the king and his coming, let's remember the cross and not forget his for us. Let's pray.